This is Coach's Influence with Justin LaVorne. Hello, welcome back to Coach's Influence. Today we're joined by Jordan Sperver. Jordan is a graduate of Villanova and spent time as a graduate assistant at Nevada and a video coordinator at New Mexico State. Now he is working doing Hoop Vision Plus, providing great breakdowns for basketball players and coaches alike. Jordan, happy to have you on. Thank you for having me, Justin. I, uh, I appreciate you having me on and I'm excited to talk here. Yes, sir. Now you have Hoop Vision Plus. You also are working with a couple podcasts, Big Game Pod and Solving Basketball, and those are awesome and very informative. I encourage everybody to go check those out. The way I like to start on this podcast is kind of let the coaches and the audience get to know you a little better. So I was hoping you could walk us through your journey through basketball and kind of where you've gotten to where you are now with Hoop Vision Plus and providing these great breakdowns on Twitter and YouTube and everywhere else. Yeah, so I've been uh, involved in basketball in some form for, for I guess, pretty much my whole life. And as a player, initially, uh, decent, not n- nothing, uh, you know, not, I didn't have D1 dreams necessarily, but uh, I, I was a gym rat at, at the very least growing up. Yep. <laughs> and I got into basketball analytics in high school. I was a big baseball fan. And not quite as big of a baseball fan anymore, more, more just a casual fan. And right. I, uh, I read Moneyball, and I guess I, I, I liked math probably more than like the average person at least. Um, <laughs> right. I'm not definitely not a math freak, but yeah, I, I wasn't averse to it, and so I read. Uh, Moneyball and some different things about statistics and got interested in in that side of things, even while still being a player and like doing some coaching. I started doing uh, skill development, like workout stuff uh, for for younger kids in high school. And I I helped coach an AAU team my senior year of high school. So I always kind of had this unique background uh, where from a, a professional perspective, from a hoop vision perspective, which I started uh, in high school, I was I was the analytics guy, uh, but I, I always had the other side too, which I went to, like you mentioned, Nevada and New Mexico State, really as the analytics guy. That, w- that was why I got hired uh, from some of the stuff that, that those coaches had seen on hoop vision regarding analytics. Uh, but then I learned so much in, in those three years working for, well, three different staffs that uh, obviously were huge in my development. And uh, right. and from there, now Hoop Vision is is a little bit of everything. It's got it's got the X's and O's. It's got the the analytics. And then it also has some insider stuff, just having worked in the industry uh, that people might know, not know about, about coaching and things like right. that. Right. That's really cool. And for anybody else listening, I definitely recommend Hoop Vision Plus. It's very valuable to any coach or player or just fan of the game. It's really cool stuff. So I'd like to start out at this point, you're you're kind of an expert when it comes to these breakdowns and, you know, analytically how it all applies. Can you kind of explain how you go about creating these breakdowns that we all see and kind of is it I'm looking at a specific statistic and then I find these teams or are you looking at specific teams and then something catches your eye? Can you kind of walk us through that? It's definitely both. So I 
I think that people might be surprised when I say this, but I kind of see Hoop Vision more from like a journalistic perspective, like covering college basketball. Yeah. Uh, whereas course. a lot of the best coaching resources out there, uh, they're coming at it from like an educational and and coaching perspective uh, right. and very focused on on helping young coaches and and with resources and things like that and i would like to think that that hoop vision does that to an extent but it's definitely not the main goal uh, I, the way right. the way i look at it is we cover college basketball and our coverage mostly due to like what my interests are tends to be pretty coaching heavy um, right. i i wouldn't necessarily you know when i'm trying to think of a topic that, you know, if you went on ESPN or any of the major media uh, sites covering college basketball, they would probably give certain topics a lot of time that that is just isn't what Hoop Vision is about, really. Right. Um, exactly. I don't know. I, I guess the James Wiseman suspension or, or something like that. Right. Um, of course. So. So, yeah, as far as how that process goes to to get to that stuff. Sometimes it is uh, starting with stats, finding unique teams statistically, and then going to the film and figuring out why. They really do usually line up pretty well, the, the, the stats right. and, and the film. It's, if they aren't, there's, there's a reason for it. Um, that you know, I, I think that they go in unison pretty well. And then, and then sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'll be watching a game on a on a weeknight or something like that and and the team runs something I really like and that then I'm just gonna run with it that way um, as opposed to starting with the numbers right that's cool and we've talked a little bit briefly about this but can you kind of explain your personal view on the value of analytics in basketball and specifically its application to decision making as a coach and I know a lot of coaches might sway to either side but there definitely is a balance can you speak to the value of analytics yes so and i use the the word analytics all the time uh but i think that the that maybe the better word is data uh so yeah. use, using yeah. data to to make decisions and it, it's not unique to basketball like whatever whatever industry you you are in um, or whatever whatever subject you're looking at, data is is a good thing. Now, someone has to make decisions off of the data, run their own analysis off of the data, and that's where if you're a coach right. and and yeah. you think that uh, if if you think that your team should be shooting more mid range shots than the analytics people say, I mean we can have that conversation, but even if uh, that is your stance, I would like to find data or or some type of numbers that can back up why that is the case. Uh, so maybe what gets focused on a little too much right now in, in the coaching and between the back and forth between coaching and analytics is like the very mm -hmm. specific, like shoot more threes and don't post up as much and things like that. Whereas what it really is is let use data to make the best decisions possible, uh, right? And, and and that so, can change based on you know no team strength, and you can't win or die by analytics, but it can be a very valuable tool for sure. Um, speaking on post ups and three pointers and that kind of area of analytics with the Rockets and what we see today, how much of that is 
really reasonable to say. Can you kind of speak on the emphasis of, you know, three-pointer, no mid-range, either a layup or a three, that movement that we kind of have today? Yeah. So I guess if we start with the mid-range, my, my sort of biggest points on, on that has been the math is pretty uh, overwhelming in favor of, let's say you're running a pick and pop with your five-man. You, you're getting that extra point if he pops to the three-point line instead of to the elbow or the elbow extended. And that extra point is very valuable. Um, it, you know, if the five-man uh, doesn't have the range to shoot the three, which is you know a possibility for sure. There's, there's plenty of college bigs that don't. I would say the chances are they don't have the range to make the mid-range at a high enough rate either. Mm. But the larger point here is that it does context does need to be determined within your offense so right uh, in my opinion a pick and pop is much different and much more controllable as a coach in terms of where you want him to pop to than someone is closing out on you uh let's say it's your best player so they're closing out real hard he pump fakes and he takes uh one dribble for a mid-range jumper I would argue that that uh, marginally speaking, you would like him to find a more efficient solution in the long run. But that's not to say that he never takes that mid-range jumper. And in order, so that, that that's the key. It's making marginal improvements to your shot selection. If you try to make drastic improvements to your shot selection, that's when you can have players doing things that they're not good at. So drastic mm. improvements might require playing different players. And, and so that changes your team completely. Uh, so I guess I'm somewhere in between. I don't necessarily agree with the, you know, mid-range is dead and, and never take a mid-range jumper, which I don't think there's too many people arguing never take a mid-range jumper. But but I right. also yeah. don't agree with, like, ignoring the math completely. I, I don't think that's wise. Gotcha. When we speak about offensive efficiency this year with the Kimpon, we see Michigan State, Villanova, Louisville has been really successful all around. Gonzaga and Dayton capping off the top five. Um, and it's not really fair to say there's one reason or way that these teams are at the top. But is there a common element, especially when we look at the data that makes these teams so efficient? Or is it just like a certain style of play that they're adopting? Yeah, I'd say just reading those teams that, uh, that you mentioned, I mean, there's some pretty contrasting styles there. So Villanova, Villanova plays the analytics-friendly, uh, spread you out, shoot threes. I mean, they. I know last season over 50% of their shots were threes, which I think they were only the second high major to ever be over the 50% mark. And they're a little bit different this year, but that, I mean, they still have the same overall philosophy. Gonzaga, mm -hmm. you mentioned them. I mean, they, they're two traditional bigs. They run a, a lot of high-low stuff, which is really the opposite of, of Villanova. They do a good job of using the ball screen, which, which I think is a big part for them. But that's, I think that's a good point about college basketball in particular. And, and it, I've said this a bunch of times, but it's, it's why... Um, I've always gravitated towards college. Not that I don't like the NBA. I, I, I do enjoy watching the NBA. Uh, mm -hmm. But the, the, there's just a lot of different ways to win in college. When you have 353 teams and such a diverse talent pool, there's, there's not one way to necessarily do it. 
but that doesn't mean that there aren't some ways that are a little bit better than others. Uh, right. But, but but you can do it. You can you can do it with a lot of different ways. Yeah, that's really cool. Moving on to transition efficiency, we kind of see the same teams. It does differ a little bit, but Anthony Grant and Dayton are at the top. I saw your interesting statistic dating back to 2010. We also see Coach K from Duke and John Bailing at Michigan. He's not there anymore, but it kind of speaks to the testament of, you know, Coach K even having these different teams, but in different tools. You have Zion and RJ. You have different guys coming in that can do different things, even in transition. But what makes them so successful in transition? And even you see with Dayton, they're on both lists. How does that connect, you know, all together with that offensive efficiency? Yeah, that's that's a good point. So that that tweet that you're referring to was the most efficient transition offenses and the highest usage transition offenses. And right. what what I was I think I'll probably expand on this in, in a Hoop Vision Plus post at some point. But what I Ooh. what I kind of had in mind is that, you know, we I, I did a, a super cut over the summer of coaches talking about how they want to play fast in, in their introductory press conferences. Uh, right. like, it was like 16 of them saying, saying we want to play fast. And if you look at transition efficiency and transition usage, which usage is meaning just how often you, you try to get out and run. Yeah. That doesn't correlate very well to uh, overall team success. It's not that running is a bad thing trying to, trying to run, um, at a very high rate. It's not a bad thing, uh, but it's not really, it doesn't really help you either. <laughs> uh, right. And and people might be surprised by that. I mean, Virginia did just win the national championship playing the slowest in the country. So there's that. But mm-hmm. on the flip side, playing super slow isn't, isn't some type of secret way to success either. Uh, I think that the data would probably and and I haven't really deep dived into it quite yet, but it would probably support playing somewhere in between pace wise. Um, right, and I I feel like that's what you see with you know Dayton and Duke and Michigan, um, kind of finding that balance and being successful. And there are different sides of the spectrum that we see with you know St. Mary's and Iowa State. But I'll let you go ahead. My bad. No, no, I, that's right. That's right. Uh, and it, uh, it, there is a trade-off there as you start. So let's think about, I guess, Virginia, who, who is really never pushing the ball. Well, right. the, all their transition possessions are probably coming off steals, like breakaway layups. And so their efficiency is going to be pretty high uh, because mm-hmm. they're only uh, pushing on the best of possible opportunities. And so as you push more and more, you would expect that your efficiency goes down. But the question is, like, where? what's the sweet spot there? And right. uh, I think Anthony Grant um, is the most efficient. And then Steve Prohm at, uh, at Iowa State, he didn't make either list in terms of efficiency or usage. But right. if you kind of combine them together, like the uh, most efficient at a certain level of usage, he, he's right there, too. Um, so it's something to think about. I mean, the other thing with transition is you don't just play fast by clicking a button. Like you practice it every day. And you like if you look at North Carolina or a team like that, they're disciplined at taking the ball out of the rim and pushing it up the court. 
And that takes a lot of practice time and a lot of practice equity to do that. So absolutely, I, you're giving something up by being so committed to uh, running in transition. And that's what coaching is. It's figuring out what you want to emphasize, what doesn't mean as much to you to maximize your personnel. Right. And I think that kind of speaks to the testament that you were saying about the beauty of college basketball and that you can play so differently and find success. We see Randy Bennett at St. Mary's and Steve Prohm at a high efficiency on that list, but they're on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to pushing it or playing slow. And I think that's really cool. Talking exactly. about kind of the similarities, uh, I've heard you say this in a video before that coaching is a copycat industry. And I think <laughs> that's also another beauty of the game. And there's nothing wrong with that because trends come and go. But specifically with the X's and O's, one trend that we have seen that's kind of followed this copycat industry is the continuity ball screen and its popularity. Can you speak on, you know, just the popularity of continuity ball screens and why it's become such a popular usage in college basketball lately? Yeah. Uh, so that's I, I did a video last year called the most run playing college basketball and, and it was continuity ball screen. And I've been, I'm going to update later on in the season when, when we have some more games being played. I'm going to make a YouTube video of 100 different teams running continuity ball screen because wow. there, there really is. There really, I've, what I've been doing is saving them as I see them, and, and I'm going to put, put them all together. And I don't know how many minutes 100 teams running it will be, but um, <laughs> it's I mean, it's it's real like. Even teams that aren't running it, they well, I guess for for uh, those who don't know, let's let's explain it really quick here. Um, right. It's continuity, meaning it's the same thing over and over again. So to me, continuity ball screen has kind of taken over from flex. You know, everyone was running continuity flex like 10, 20 years ago. Uh, maybe right. at the high school level, it is still being run a lot, but not so much at the college level. And uh and so it's it's the same as as the flex offense, where it's the same thing happening over and over again. So in, in the ball screen, it's an empty ball screen, meaning uh, there's no one in the corner to start. So a player comes off the ball screen. If it's not open, he throws it from slot to slot to the other side of the court. And uh, now there's three people on the other side of the court. So one of them cuts back door and then another empty ball screen occurs. And then it can go from slot to slot. There's three people on the other side of the court. He cuts through. Another ball screen occurs. And it's just the same thing over and over again. Uh, the reason why I think it's been so pervasive in, in college basketball is just like the flex offense, it, it gets movement. Uh, it gets the, I guess, your players moving, but more importantly, the defense moving. But what happened with the flex is it was never really a particularly good offense for like three point spacing and continuity ball screen is it's right. it, it starts out with five guys on the perimeter. Uh, the only time there's really not five on the perimeter is, is on that cut through when, when you're moving to the weak side. And, and so it's, it's also a pretty flexible offense in that some teams run it every play of the game more or less you know I, I shouldn't say that but some some teams run it as the majority of their offense right the and, foundation exactly and they work on reads and counters and and different things that they can do out of it and then other teams just probably use it five times a game and 
they probably don't work on on those reads and counters. They're just they're just using it as a changeup. They use it to to get get some pace going, get the ball moving. And yeah, I talk about it quite a bit in our coverage, and uh, we we ran it for the majority of our offense. One of my years, one of the three years in in coaching. And I don't. If I was to become a head coach tomorrow, I don't think it would it would be my primary offense. But I, I enjoy analyzing it, and uh, I think there's worse stuff out there for sure. <laughs> and and uh, it's pretty interesting to see. I think that I think we've been able to educate fans on on what it is, and and <laughs> continuity ball screen is like one of the premier. Th- platforms of hoop vision i guess (laughs) right and like you said different teams run it to different extents i've seen you know duke might run it as a set while other teams are running it the whole game um but i think it's really cool like you said it does have that flexibility and you can make adjustments i saw on your hoop vision plus for instance stanford runs it with a spain action or you can run it with a ucla wrinkle like you've posted i think that's really cool and it actually brings me back to another podcast that you did with john shire on solving basketball Mm -hmm. um and i found it really interesting when y'all were talking about this and he said coach k one of his best i would say skills or qualities that john said he brings to the table every year is getting his players to understand the reads that they can make out of the offense not necessarily just nailing down the offense point by point but being able to have that flexibility and the knowledge to run that offense um and i thought that was really cool yeah, definitely. Um, that's. I think it's another thing that some coaches uh, are more philosophically towards than others. So there are definitely uh, coaches out there. The first one that always pops into my head is uh, Bob McKillop at at Davidson, where they run they run a motion offense. It's a lot of stagger screens, but they're just so good at reading y- what you are doing, guarding them. And if you lock and trail, they curl to the basket. If you try to cheat it, uh, they cut back door. And, yeah. and they they always have a solution to how you're defending them. And then there are some other coaches. I would say I would put Bill Self in this category at Kansas, mm-hmm. where the action and the plays themselves have there, – there's not as much reading as, as there is executing. So – their plays are built in a way with timing and spacing where if they're running it right and, and if the defense isn't prepared for it, it kind of creates a basket or a shot opportunity on its own. Uh, Obviously uh, defenses do scouting and, and are trying to take these things away. It's not like they work every single time, uh, but those Mm -hmm. are, those are kind of the two different styles and yeah, I think that reading the defense is pretty important. And even a, a team like Kansas with those plays, you know, when they do get stalled out, that's where it will would become extra important for them in, in late shot clock plays and yeah. just in their flow. Right. As a coach, where do you think you fall into that, for instance, if it was your team? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. I would say I would want to fall more into the reading the defense, but I haven't been like a head. So as a video coordinator at New Mexico state, I was limited to, to what I could actually do on the court just with NCAA rules. Right. Um, and also, you know, you're, you're pretty low on the totem pole uh, <laughs> of the, of the staff in general. So I haven't, I haven't been a, uh, 
a head coach in in several years here when I until I coached like an AAU team, and uh, I can say that that the teaching aspect or the coaching aspect of of reading the defense is really hard, and so. It's one thing, I think, as a coach to say what you want to do, but you have to be able to teach it and develop it. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah. And so I uh, that, that's probably why I run Hoop Vision and I don't coach, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I think I'm pretty good at identifying what other coaches do and, and explaining it. But but uh, that's a different skill set than, than teaching, you know? Right. Yeah. And it's interesting to see somebody like Coach K who's had so much success with so many different players and he's he's been in the top 10 of offensive efficiency plenty of times but how would you say you know where would you stand when it comes to recruiting for your system or mm. you know recruiting players for your system as opposed to basing your system year to year upon the talent and recruits that you have yeah that's that's also a really good question and i i feel like the um, answer to a lot of these are, are that you can do it both ways. That's been kind of the constant theme of, of this conversation. Uh, but right. I've had uh, Kyle Smith on Solving Basketball, who at the time was the head coach of San Francisco. He's now the head coach of Washington State. And he talked about their recruiting philosophy, how they aren't reaching to get the best possible talent. They're trying to find the right fit. Uh, and he's been really successful at it. He was he was at Columbia beforehand and and especially at Columbia and and at San Francisco, he's won at levels where those programs haven't normally won in recent years. And and they've done it by finding like the diamond in the roughs or or the the system guys. I can tell you at New Mexico State, where, where I was at, that's not really the, the recruiting model. So it's much more the other way around where you're, you're trying to get the best talent possible and figuring out how to play with them or, or how to adapt your scheme a little bit. But, you know, Coach Jans is, is, is the head coach there now. And he does have like defense and rebounding are kind of his core principles. And even if even if you don't come in with a defense and a rebounding uh, mentality, you're probably yeah. going to have one. It's <laughs> uh, probably going to, he's probably going to turn you into that. So it's a little bit of both, I think. And if, depending on even like the, the program itself, like where you're located and your access to players, it's right. It's absolutely. Guess not coach, you know? Yeah. And that's like we talked about, that's one really cool part about the game that is college basketball and you know, the difference between these power five teams and those low major teams that might make a big difference of how you base your offense around recruiting and stuff. Um, yep. Speaking on that Shire podcast one more time, they were saying defensively with Coach K, the goals were to limit threes and three point percentage, limit fouls and one on one D. And I mean, that sounds easy to say. People think, duh, of course I want to do that. But how do teams like we talked about Virginia? And Texas Tech, Michigan, Louisville's had great success. They all have these different types of defensive styles. But what makes them all so good? Is there something analytically that they're all doing? Or is it really just they each have different emphasis that they go on and build their defense on? Yeah. So one thing that's come from from the analytics movement that I've pushed back on a little bit is three-point defense. So... Um, the numbers are pretty 
uh, strong in saying that as a defense, you don't have a lot of control over how efficient or, or what percentage your opponent shoots from three. You do have uh, much more control over how many they take. Um, so if, mm-hmm. if, if you kind of superficially follow that logic, it's okay. Basically, if you're giving up three point shots, you're kind of playing the lottery a little bit. And three pointers are worth three, so you don't want to give those shots up. Basically, you'd rather not play the lottery, uh, and that is kind of on on a surface level true. Uh, but the issue is that there's nothing that puts more strain on your defense than trying to defend the three point shot. Right. Uh, it just whatever. If we're talking about ball screens, and and you don't want any shots out of ball screens, uh, maybe you have to hard hedge. Or if we're talking about like guarding a pin down or an off ball screen, you have to lock and trail. You have to show with the big who's who's helping on that pin down. And now they can slip to the hoop or, or whatever the case is. I mean, the Warriors are probably the best example of that. Just just the, the gravity um, of Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. That's uh, even when they're not shooting threes, it's, it's difficult. So, yeah, as far as like commonalities between all of those teams, you're, you're definitely right that, that the schemes are different. Uh, I think you hit it with, with uh, what you said about Duke that, you know, guarding one on one, that is that's going to be important no matter what your scheme is. Right. Um, yeah. Maybe a little bit more important in, in some schemes, but, but I would still put that right up there. And then rim protection. I mean, rim protection is definitely important uh there are some things that teams do uh scheme wise to lessen the need to have like the seven foot rim protector but you'd still rather have rim protection than not have it yeah and and yeah i guess maybe the biggest difference between between some defenses is you can have a virginia who really does not look to turn you over uh they're going to be towards the bottom in the country in turnover percentage every year Uh, Or you can have a team like Duke who denies one pass away and and pressures and um, neither way is is wrong. Uh, But but you can be an elite defense because of turning you over or without turning you over. Absolutely. And I think that even goes back to what we said about, you know, we talk about changing our offensive system. But I mean, that applies to defense, too. We see with Louisville, they're extremely athletic, so they're able to pack it in and um, we see that stark contrast between like a tech and a Michigan where Michigan's saying, we're not going to let them shoot threes. We're going to be picking and choosing when we're going to help, um, and play smart in that aspect. But tech is no middle. We're going to go all out with this. And we've seen that popularity with tech, especially with icing ball screens. Um, and that's kind of one of the things we talk about a copycat industry that a lot of schools are adopting just like the continuity ball screen why has icing ball screens become so popular yeah so i guess let's let's explain that uh icing is when a ball screen gets set and you're guarding the player with the ball and you jump on on the high side and don't let him use the screen and and force him towards the baseline so it gets called i call it ice a lot of coaches call it down or blue. So icing, downing, or bluing. And I think it seems to get attributed to Tom Thibodeau from his Celtics days as an assistant coach. 
I don't know if if he created it, but you could definitely always hear him screaming ice on the sidelines. So that that's was kind of the rise. And it's been the ball screen coverage of choice in the NBA for for a while. I think it has decreased in prevalence. I don't watch a ton of NBA during the regular season, uh, but I actually had a, uh, a coach reach out to me that it was ironic that that so many college teams are icing this year because it has decreased in the NBA. So I'll, I'll take his word for that. Hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, at, at the college level, I think that Texas Tech does have something to do with it and, and how successful that, that they've been uh, by keeping the ball out of the middle. But really the main goal or, or yeah, one of the main goals of keeping keeping it on a side or keeping it out of the middle is that that pass out is just a longer pass to make. So it's I think that icing is a pretty good way of avoiding rhythm catch-and-shoot threes in, in your ball screen coverage while also not having to get out and be aggressive and hedge. So so in uh, in ice coverage, normally the big is back. It, it can It depends on the team just how far back he is, uh, but he's not getting overextended. And mm-hmm. it can lead to mid-range jumpers. It can lead to opponents opposing five men having to make plays that they're not comfortable with in pop situations or in short roll situations. And uh, and I think it has been pretty successful. But there's plenty of teams not icing as, as well. Mm. That's really interesting. This might be a broad question. Before we start the speed round, I'd just like to ask, is there one system in particular, going back to like if you were a coach, that you've noticed is really successful when it comes to like data, you know, is there anything in particular, like you said, it's not necessarily no threes, but is there any trend that you've noticed where it's like teams that are doing this on defense are having a lot of success? So it might not be as specific of of an answer as, as you'd like, but one thing that I noticed last year, uh, and it, it makes sense with, with just kind of basic intuition is that elite defenses tend to force isolations at at a higher rate than the NCAA average at at a much higher rate than the NCAA average so uh, I wasn't positive going into the research if that would be the case I thought that maybe let's say you're playing a really talented team uh, who doesn't need basically I didn't know if isolation was the product of not being able to score, which which I think it is, or of having really good players that just have the ability to isolate. Um, right. But it was it's it was more of of the the first one. So regardless of if your pack line or denial, the the best teams in the country, so the Texas Techs and the Michigans and and a lot of the teams that you've mentioned, it's hard to score off your initial action and late clock possessions then lead to isolations. Uh, so hmm. so that's that's a pretty good predictor of a defense. Now, how you get there scheme-wise can be different. Switching is is probably the easy, the easiest way to to stall action and and force isolations. Right. Uh, but there aren't a ton of teams switching 1 through 5. There are a ton switching 1 through 4, uh, hmm. but there's still is some resistance to just going all out, at least on a consistent basis. Maybe against a certain team, uh, you do it. But but yeah, hmm, that's really interesting. No, that's that's exactly what I was curious about. Appreciate that. All right, before I let you go, I got a few speed round questions for you. Yeah, let's do it. 
Number one, is there a favorite team that you have to watch or break down? Hmm, my favorite team to watch or break down. I know that's so, a tough one. Yeah, I would say, I would say, and I, I don't mean favorite like I'm rooting for the team. Uh, <laughs> right, but right, I, right. In terms of because of how unique stylistically they are, I would I would say Virginia. Um, it definitely helped that they won the national championship and were, you know, ranked number one for, for a lot of the season last year. And, and this was my first year back into hoop vision, but they, the way Tony Bennett coaches is uh, they're, they're very disciplined. I don't know if that's the word I'm looking for, but uh, they're always running something on, on offense. There's not a lot of like freelance necessarily. And that's a fun thing to break down and chart a team that is so like dedicated to their system because I like evaluating systems like that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's cool. All right. Not realistic, but just for kicks, if you're coaching a team, would you rather never have any stats or data available or never be able to have or review any film? (laughs) Um, (laughs) that's, that's, I really like that question. Uh, (laughs) so I would pick the film I would pick the film. Uh, my loophole would be that you can use film to then create data. Like that, I usually yeah, when I'm watching, yeah, yeah. <laughs> usually when I'm watching film, I'm, I'm going to be counting something. But but let's let's ignore that. Um, I mean, even with, potentially there might be high school programs that do have to deal with this situation. But yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, <laughs> that, that's that's a, that's a good point. But yeah, I so even I would pick the film and I'll I'll ignore the loophole. The reason why <laughs> is that I would still be data oriented in terms of uh, not necessarily my team in particular. Uh, like I, you don't even necessarily need to know the stats, exact stats of your players, but you can use you know college data or or NBA data or just like math in the background. I, it's kind of hard to explain, but. Like right. just because I don't have data on on how my team shoots in the mid range, or I don't have stats on any of that, uh, doesn't mean I can't still kind of align with analytics. If that makes sense. No, yeah, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> I'll have to continue asking that question. Yeah, I like it. I like it. <laughs> what is the vision for Hoop Vision moving forward? The vision for Hoop Vision going forward is well to continue covering college basketball in a, in a unique way the we don't use it a ton but our little motto has been to watch smarter to help to help fans and and coaches watch smarter um there's definitely some uh, longer term goals uh actually some shorter term goals <laughs> too that that'll that'll be coming in or, or soon here but yeah it's been a little bit uncharted territory, especially in the college basketball world. There, I think there's a lot of people doing similar stuff at the NBA level, uh, analyzing the NBA game. And so it's been fun and definitely a lot of work, uh, but fun work. Right. Try, trying to uh, trying to build it up and and see what what the audience is like at, at the college level. And uh, it's going well so far. Right. That's really cool. Um, last question. And I like to ask this every time on the podcast. What is the number one piece of advice you would give for growing coaches? Or, I mean, even in your case, you call yourself somewhere between a basketball coach and a data scientist. (laughs) Just people trying to grow in the game and find, you know, their niche in the game of basketball. What's the number one piece of advice you would give? Yeah, well, 
you said find their niche. Uh, I think that that has been a big help in my career. When I was first starting, it's not like I, I would have considered myself an analytic, but I kind of realized right away that that uh, that was going to be that was going to be the way for me to get a job, and it made me unique in in some ways. And so that would be maybe the general advice. Uh, to be to follow what what your what most interests you also being good at the other things uh so i i I have been streaky at times in my basketball career i i'll go like a few months where i'm obsessed with like shooting form and um (laughs) and learning about all of that stuff and you know that was probably like in college where i i was obsessed with uh player development and, and shooting form and things like that and but always kind of trying to get better at at the data science stuff, like you said. I, I, my uh, my Twitter bio probably offends both people. It probably offends coaches because I'm not a coach, and it probably offends data scientists. Um, <laughs> but uh, but right. I ha- I have worked to uh, to try to be better in those things, and you know it's I had that like player mentality of of constantly trying to get better as a player, and have tried to apply that to hoop vision or or whatever it is. Right, that's awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on. For those listening and for those who might not be familiar with Jordan, definitely check out his content at HoopVision68, Twitter, YouTube, wherever you can. It's a great tool to learn. And even if you're just a college basketball fan, it's an awesome tool. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you, Justin. I I appreciate you having me. And I really appreciate you being a subscriber. And just based off of your questions, I can tell that you've you've been checking this stuff out. So that's that's always really cool. You never know if if people are really reading it or not. So so thank you. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Hoop Vision Plus, a great tool. I would definitely recommend subscribing. All right. Thanks for coming on. Thank you.